Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to a surprise episode of SCOTUS 101. Last week, I told you you'd be getting a break from us. And yet, here we are. So what happened, GC? Well, the court made me do it, is my excuse. As I mentioned last week, the court is on a working recess during the first two weeks of February, and it has not, in the past, for many years, released opinions during those weeks. But let me guess, it did release opinions this year. Yes, it did. On a surprise Wednesday issue, we got two opinions. So what's up first? The first case is the Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip. This is the Nazi art case. The respondents in this case, uh, plaintiffs below, were heirs of German-Jewish art dealers who formed a consortium during the waning years of the Weimar Republic to purchase a collection of very valuable medieval German relics. The heirs allege that when the Nazi government rose to power, it unlawfully coerced the consortium into selling the collection for a third of its value. So the question in the case is whether the heirs could sue the government of Germany in the United States specifically in U.S. federal court. The chief justice wrote for a unanimous court and held that they could not sue Germany. This case centered around a law called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which generally prevents foreign governments from being sued in U.S. courts unless a claim fits within one of several exceptions. One of those exceptions is called the expropriation exception, and it says that you can sue a foreign government in U.S. courts for, and I quote, property takings in violation of international law. So the heirs argued that the alleged coerced purchase of the art was in violation of international law because it was part of the Nazi government's genocide against the Jews. Germany countered and said the phrase in violation of international law refers only to violations of international expropriation law, not other international laws like the human rights laws. What's more, Germany argued, international expropriation law recognizes the domestic takings rule which holds that when a government takes property from its own citizens, that's a matter of purely domestic and not international law. So, said Germany, it cannot be sued in U.S. courts because the taking did not implicate international law. The court unanimously agreed with Germany. The court held that the expropriation exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act incorporates only the international law of expropriation, not the law of genocide. And the international law of expropriation incorporates the domestic takings rule. Because the Nazi government took the art from its own citizens, it was not a matter of international law and the petitioners couldn't sue in federal court. Now, you might be wondering, why did they sue in U.S. court and not in Germany? Incidentally, they did submit their claim to the relevant German authority, but an official investigation concluded that the art was, in fact, sold for a fair price and without coercion. That seems surprising to me, but it left them without recourse in Germany. That's a very interesting case, GC. Uh, The second of the surprise opinions this week was Salinas v. United States Railroad Retirement Board. And this case has the distinction of being this term's first five to four decision. Uh, It was a little bit of a surprising lineup with Justice Sonia Sotomayor writing the opinion, and she was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Kavanaugh, Breyer, and Kagan. The court held that the Railroad Retirement Act of 1974, the RRA, 
allowed for judicial review of the U.S. Railroad Retirement Board's decision not to reopen a prior benefits determination, concluding that the relevant provisions of that act make judicial review available to the same extent that judicial review is available under the Railroad Unemployment Insurance Act, the RUIA. The court then concluded that the text of RUIA permitted judicial review. It was a dense opinion, and four of the justices obviously disagreed with Justice Sotomayor. Justice Thomas wrote a dissenting opinion, which was joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, uh, where Justice Thomas argued that the text of the Railroad Retirement Act does not permit judicial review of this issue, and that while the, quote, RRA references the RUIA to explain how to obtain judicial review, it defines separately what may be reviewed, which was the key issue here. Although the majority and the dissent disagreed over what the text of the RRA required, both agreed that the text controlled. This case really does go to show that we're all textualists now. This case also demonstrates that even though Justice Barrett has replaced Justice Ginsburg, the liberal wing of the court may still be able to cobble together a majority from time to time. In orders this week, the court also added a new case to its docket, Penn East Pipeline Co. versus New Jersey. This case will decide whether a private company that holds a certificate granting it the right to use the federal government's eminent domain power can exercise that power over land in which a state has an interest. The company here is trying to build an oil pipeline through Pennsylvania and New Jersey and wants to use eminent domain to condemn some land in which New Jersey had an interest. The company sued the state to enforce its eminent domain power, but the Third Circuit held that the suit was barred by the state's 11th Amendment sovereign immunity. The case will be argued in April. And joining us this week for our Get to Know the People Behind the Robes, we have Judge Brantley Starr of the Northern District of Texas. We are joined today by Judge Brantley Starr. Judge Starr is a judge on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. He's been on the bench for about a year and a half. Before that, he served as Deputy First Assistant Attorney General of Texas. He has served in many roles in the Texas AG's office, including as an Assistant Solicitor General and Deputy Attorney General for Legal Counsel. He began his career as a law clerk to then-Justice, now-Judge Don Willett, and as a staff attorney to Justice Eva Guzman on the Texas Supreme Court. Judge Starr, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Giancarlo. I really appreciate being on your program. It's fine quality, and I appreciate you diluting it today. <laughs> well, Judge, it's our pleasure to have you on. Judge, did you know you always wanted to be a lawyer? Well, I was fortunate to know pretty early on um, for two reasons, I guess. Um, one, I had a family member who was both a government lawyer and a judge at different points in his career, uh, Ken Starr. And as, as an uncle, uh, we spent plenty of time together. And so I was able to ask him questions on what his job was like. And it always fascinated me. And so I thought, you know, w one day I, I too would like to be a government lawyer. And if I'm so fortunate to be a judge. But a second factor was also at play. Um, I'm a public school educated kid from West Texas, and our, our school in middle school in eighth grade, they put us through all day career testing. Um, it's pretty early on, but it gave us a preview of what perhaps we would want to enjoy doing with our career. And my test results showed a 98% match for a lawyer, a 99% match for a judge. So it was pretty good confirmation early on that uh, what I admired about uh, my uncle's jobs was something that I might gravitate towards as well. 
So you went to college uh, knowing you wanted to be a lawyer. What did you study there? I studied everything. Um, so I, I went to college at Abilene Christian University. I'm the youngest of four kids, and all three of my older siblings had gone there. And um, they have a program called the Jack Pope Fellows Program that was named after a former Texas Supreme Court Chief Justice from uh, decades gone by. And he was an alumnus of the school and just a legendary Chief Justice. I knew I wanted to do the Jack Pope Fellows Program. Um, but then I sprinkled in almost a best of mixtape for uh, all the other professors uh, that they had at ACU. Um, with my older siblings, I had seen who those professors were. And I think I got approval from perhaps six different departments to combine their classes into one degree program and give me a wide preparation before going to law school. And uh, how did you find law school? Did it compare favorably to your uh, career testing? Uh, you know, it did. Law school can also be an isolating thing, right? In, in law, the professors tend to want to um, break you down and break down your way of thinking and then build you back up again. And so, you know, I had gone to an undergrad where our professors would have us over for, for dinner for each class at least once a semester. And a public law school is, is not exactly that way and is not designed to be where I went at the University of Texas. But it was a phenomenal experience because you could still find your community niche in something like a, a law journal, a law review, uh, and have that community there to help support you as you go through and break your thinking down, build it back up, and, and be stronger than you ever entered law school. So um, it, it wasn't exactly what I expected because um, you know everyone I talked to had a different slight view of law school, but I found it to be a really rewarding experience overall. And tell me after law school about your clerkship for Judge Willett. What was that like? Well, I was fortunate to have it. Um, I'd actually worked for then Justice Willett for about a year at the Attorney General's office and then followed him over when he became a judge on the Texas mm -hmm. Supreme Court. It was a fascinating experience. Uh, he had never been a judge before that. And when he joined the court, I still remember the first day we were in chambers together, the Chief Justice uh, came down to Chambers and brought a stack of eight cases and said, these eight cases have been tied up at four to four. And so, you know, there are majorities that say majority, but they're really not because they have four votes and dissents that uh, say they're a dissent, but they might be a majority if you side with them. So you have all the time you need, but take two weeks. And in two <laughs> weeks, come back to us and, and say how these cases should turn out. Uh, and that was that was really jumping into the deep end. It was just a wonderful dip in the deep end because um, we really learned early on that you couldn't keep thinking through who you're going to make happy and who you're going to disappoint with your decisions. The best you can do is dive deeply into each case, investigate it thoroughly, and come to the fairest, most legally correct ruling that you possibly can, and then the chips fall where they fall. And some people will be happy and some won't be. Uh, but it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. That year, Justice Willett really taught me writing is everything and summaries are vital. So, you know, writing, he taught us we should always feel bad for someone who's having to read your writing. And so we should make it as understandable, as entertaining as we can. And then uh, he also taught us that value of a good summary. You know, sometimes when we're working on our writing, we, we might forget that the summary is all a lot of people will read, the introduction. And so um, making that introduction crisp tight, but comprehensive is a good start for the 90% of people who will pick up that writing because those 90% won't actually finish it. Do you have any particularly fond memories of your time with Justice Willett? 
Well, I do. Most of them would be barred by the confidentiality agreement <laughs> that's in place between the parties. But I can tell you um, perhaps one that's not within the scope. That's a joke, by the way. Um, so when I was clerking for him uh, that, that particular year, I believe that my alma mater for law school, University of Texas, and his alma mater for law school, Duke, were playing in basketball. And as, as a good indication of how unwise I was at the time, I, I wagered with him, a friendly wager, that UT would win. And so the bet on that was that the loser would have to wear the team gear uh, for the winner's team to the Supreme Court's next conference. The conference is where all nine justices get together, all the staff, everyone's in a suit, and uh, they talk for at least eight hours about pending cases. So I, uh, I lost that bet. I have now learned to never bet against Coach K, and I, I was wearing several layers of Duke garb and sweating <laughs> profusely during an eight-hour conference. <laughs> I, I know you were his first law clerk, so I don't know if he had time yet to establish any traditions with his clerks, but did that happen over the course of your uh, – was it a year with him? It was over the course of a year. Um, and so when he started, it was in September when a normal clerk season is starting. So I was fortunate to have a year. And fairly early on, he developed uh, what I think is his best tradition. And it's one that as soon as COVID ends, I'll try to emulate with my clerks. But he was well connected. He seemed to know everyone in Austin and, and beyond. And so he would have these lunches um, periodically, usually once or twice a month with some other accomplished lawyer or judge or professor. Um, and, you know, sometimes they were speechwriters too. Like he, he had a wide Rolodex. And we would just hear war stories and advice from these incredibly distinguished individuals who really made a mark on the country. And as a result of that, um, that helped me get a wider understanding of the things you could accomplish even as a lawyer. And so it really broadened uh, my perspective as, as someone who had just come out of law school. So it's something I hope to replicate, albeit my Rolodex is not nearly what his was or is. Besides uh, Judge Willett, who have your other mentors been? Well, I won the mentor lottery. It was pretty incredible because Willett was my uh, boss and mentor for my first two jobs. After that, I went to work for uh, then Solicitor General Ted Cruz. And after he finished his time there as Solicitor General, it was Solicitor General Jim Ho. And obviously, Judge Ho is now on the Fifth Circuit, a phenomenal boss to learn from. I also got to work for Eva Guzman on the Supreme Court, as you mentioned earlier. Um, at one point in time, Justice Willett was our top vote getter in Texas, and he was dethroned by Justice Guzman later on as the top vote getter in Texas. And so they, what they is are a, a vote getter. Uh, you know, when you when you just add up the total number of raw votes in an election in Texas, for quite some time, we've had our Texas Supreme Court justices uh, earning that title. And so you, you'll have, you know, uh, you know, elections for governor or attorney general. But Willett and Guzman were the top vote getters in Texas um, for quite some period of time. It was perhaps indicative of how how effective they were as judges and how effective they were at communicating their judicial record to Texas voters who vote on judges. Um, it's, it's you know, not very common to have partisan judicial elections uh, in other states, but in Texas it is. And so despite voters not knowing a lot about our judges, um, they received more votes than any other candidate in history at the points in time they won that title. Justice Guzman is a phenomenal judge. And so I got to be her permanent staff attorney for, I guess, about three and a half years. And she was a phenomenal mentor as well. And she really helped me learn to have 
a ton of things in the forefront of your mind, not just one. I had spent so much time as an appellate lawyer. Um, appellate lawyers can compartmentalize and think of one thing at a time deeply for a week or two. Um, she taught me how to break that down because the Texas Supreme Court has about 1,100 cases mm. that it's considering taking at any given time. And she somehow seemed to have them all in the forefront of her mind. So I really did win the lottery when it comes to bosses and mentors. And I still have kept that record going. Um, we have a wonderful group of judges here in the Northern District of Texas and in Dallas in particular. One example of a mentor I have now is the judge that in theory I am tasked with replacing. Uh, I am a poor replacement for him, but Sidney Fitzwater um, is the judge who took senior status and cleared the way for my confirmation. And, you know, I, I took the bench at age 40, and it's, it's not very old for any judge, uh, especially a federal judge. And uh, anytime I, I wonder, do I know enough, I'll, I'll, I'll call Sid Fitzwater. And um, he took the bench at 32. And wow. so, you know, by the time he took senior status at 65, he had spent more time as a federal judge than not in his life. And so he's seen it all. And, you know, most judges, we, ha we have a decision we'll issue in a case and the loser thinks we're wrong and we're a bad judge. And for some reason, over the course of time, Judge Fitzwater's uh, reputation has improved over time instead of diminished. Uh, but he, he's a phenomenal mentor. And the judges here in Dallas, um, like him, have been incredibly giving with their time and helping me navigate how, how to start a chambers from scratch and inherit a docket of pending cases. When you were working uh, under then Solicitors General Ted Cruz and Jim Ho, what kind of work did you do in that office? Well, I guess first we did a lot of it. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was in just a second. But my first day on the job for uh, uh, Senator Cruz, then General Cruz, was an all-nighter. And there was a federal judge who was upset with our then Attorney General Greg Abbott and wanted to uh, haul him down to a courtroom and depose him. And that was legally impermissible, given the facts of the case, uh, as as we argued. But I was roped into the team that would uh, make his defense. And I didn't feel like I could leave till I had uh, had a, a brief done that would make that defense in a cohesive way. And it took all night. Um, and my wife was wondering, well, what did you sign up for? Um, but I, I signed up for fascinating cases is what I signed up for. And that that office, the Solicitor General's office, um, its main job is to represent Texas uh, on offense or defense in state or federal courts of appeals. Um, they may handle only 10 to 15 percent of the appeals that that office has. Um, so it tends to be some of the more interesting ones. Texas is always suing or getting sued over fascinating things. And when you're in that group, you you have a mix. Some cases are really your own. In some cases, you're part of a group on They're They're large cases. They're going up to the Supreme Court. And um, it's, it's a fascinating mix where even in the cases on your own, uh, you have to get your brief approved by two other lawyers who are out to trash it and are smarter than you are. And then when it comes time for oral argument, you always have at least two moots when you're in that office, even if it's a case of your own. And in those two moots, um, you will get asked questions that make oral argument look easy. Uh, and so it's it's a really grueling process to to go through and and brief up and argue a case, even one of purely your own. But it is a phenomenal learning experience, which may be why it's generated several federal judges, because Judge Ho, Judge Oldham are on the Fifth Circuit um, from that group. And then there are two other federal district judges like myself who have been in that group who recently joined the federal bench. 
from your time there, uh, do you have any special memories of Senator Cruz or Judge Ho that are not covered similarly by confidentiality? <laughs> well, I, I do. So um, I, I was fortunate to get to work for uh, Senator Cruz on a Supreme Court case. And in Supreme Court cases, you, you're working till at least two in the morning for months on end, perhaps, getting your brief polished and just right. And Senator Cruz had a very long winning streak of awards from the National AG's Association for Best Brief. And this case was was one of many of those for him. And so it was a very high standard, a meticulous standard for briefing up this case. Um, our team went to oral argument uh, at the Supreme Court. And for the team, when they go, um, the general then gives you a, a feather pen, a quill pen that the Supreme Court gives to him to distribute to the team. And it was it was such a high honor to get that. Um, you've worked so hard and then you, you get this quill pen and within two weeks of getting home, my yellow Labrador retriever ate it. It was apparently <laughs> very tasty. And so, you know, we hear of kids saying, my dog ate my homework. Well, my dog ate my prized possession for working on the Supreme Court case. But I've since rectified that. Um, it took a long time. It, it was like a 13 year delay, but there is a baby judge school, a new judge orientation they have in Washington, D.C. every year for folks who have become judges that year. And the Supreme Court is very gracious and hosts a dinner in the Great Hall outside the courtroom in the Supreme Court building. And my wife and I were walking through the gift shop afterwards, and we found that that prized quill pen was on sale for less than $5 in the gift shop. And so <laughs> I have replaced my treasured possession, but it's now in chambers so that it doesn't get eaten by my black Labrador retriever <laughs> I have now at home. So you served in many roles uh, in the Texas AG's office, uh, solicitor general's office, uh, deputy AG. How did your work differ between those roles? Well, I, I would say so. I, I was there in the SG's office. And when I came back in 2015 to the AG's office, my roles changed a little bit. It was less in the appellate group at the SG's office and more in management. So I came back to perhaps what was poetically um, Judge Willett's first job at the AG's office, and that was deputy for legal counsel. That's where you're in charge of the legal advisors, the, the transactional lawyers, if you will. Yeah. So I guess there are four groups. There's an opinions committee, general counsel, public finance, open records. Those are the lawyers who perform the legal advice that statute requires the attorney general to give. And they crank out a huge volume of work. Um, and so staying on top of it can be trying at times, but that's where uh, my background working for Justice Guzman came in handy. Uh, and I was able to think of more than one thing at a time. And that was a phenomenal experience. The opinion topics we got would run the gamut in terms of important questions. It, it would ask you know, whether there are religious liberties of employees in county clerk's offices after Obergefell. Or they would ask, uh, are DraftKings and FanDuel games of chance that are prohibited by Texas law? And so you would, you would have to perform this legal opinion that didn't have the same testing that a court has. So that's the role I stepped into in 2015. A little over a year later, I was pulled into a different role, and that was to oversee that portfolio of transactional lawyers, but also the large group of civil litigators and criminal prosecutors at the agency too. And I think Texas... Um, you know, the Texas AG's office, it's 4,200 people, and that means they have 30,000 pending civil matters at any one time in litigation wow. and 400 criminal prosecutions at any one time, plus the um, general counsel portfolio that I just mentioned. And so my job was, you know, keeper of consistency. 
Um, judges expect the AG's office to make uniform arguments, even though there are 4,200 people. Um, and uh, also to make sure that the high-profile cases were handled correctly, to not uh, to not lose sight of the cases that were of the utmost importance. So it was uh, a mind-blowingly enjoyable job to work on. Um, there was no day where I could predict at the beginning of the day what I would be working on at the end of the day. But it was it was just fascinating and just a great honor to serve for the people of Texas. You mentioned uh, Ted Cruz, and and at your confirmation hearing. Senator Cruz told it an interesting story about you and Senator Cornyn. Can you share that story for people who didn't hear it? Uh, I'd love to. So that story goes back to uh, a law review at the University of Texas School of Law. And that law review is where I first met um, Judge Willett, Senator Cruz, Judge Ho. They had all volunteered as uh, helpers on the board of advisors of that publication. And when I was editor-in-chief, I was fortunate enough to to meet them, to get to know them. That year that I was editor-in-chief, um, I, I was tasked with saying something at this banquet that they have every year. But the important part of the banquet is really to honor the the jurist of the year. They don't have to be a judge. It's just someone who's given contributions to the law in a meaningful way. And we were honoring Senator John Cornyn as our jurist of the year, uh, rightfully so, uh, had a phenomenal record, was our AG of Texas before being a senator. And I, I was seated at a table with Senator Cornyn and with then Solicitor General Cruz. And when I had to give up and give my remarks, it was very intimidating because Senator Cornyn had just spoken and he gave a really incredible speech and got a standing ovation that lasted for quite some time. And so then I, I had to take the stage and it was it was humbling and humiliating. I don't know what I said, but for some reason, I too got a standing ovation. Perhaps people felt sorry for me. Uh, and when I came back to my chair, uh, Senator Cruz, um, who was then General Cruz, said, you should remember that forever because a U.S. senator just gave you a standing ovation. And ironically, he later became our other U.S. senator and replaced K. Bailey Hutchinson. And so one current and one future U.S. senator. I have no idea why I received a standing ovation from, but I'll remember it forever. It was surreal. Besides uh, that story at your confirmation hearing, how did that process go for you? Well, confirmation is a full contact sport, I think, as everyone has seen by now. You know, the vetting they do can be very rigorous. And I would say on paper, my confirmation looked pretty swift and painless. Um, but there was a pretty long process that led up to the public part. Of the confirmation process. Um, so the public part, you know, I was nominated in March of 2019. I had a hearing in April. I was confirmed on the last day of July. And so it really was um, perhaps a land speed record of when the Senate changed the rules to move more quickly on confirmations. But that was just the tail end of a very long process otherwise. I applied for the post back in January of 2016. And to get nominated in March of 2019 is, is a pretty long period of vetting. So in Texas, the senators have a committee they've set up of some of the finest, sharpest lawyers in Texas. If you apply and if they think you're in the, the top of the list who've applied, you have the honor of going and being before them for what is 30 minutes but feels like 30 days because you'll get a new question every 30 seconds that's worded as crisply as you know one of the top – 10 top 20 lawyers in Texas can award it and they can just pin you to a chair and you get pinned to the chair for 30 minutes and uh, you walk out feeling uh, feeling like you're, you're half dead, but 
it's such a phenomenal group that it's an honor to be <laughs> to be tortured by them. It was impressive. <laughs> if you make that cut, then the senators bring you to Washington, D.C. They talk to you. You won't know for a while, perhaps, if you made the cut at the senator level. If you have, then you get a call from the White House counsel's office. They schedule a time for you to come visit with them and the Department of Justice. If you clear that hurdle, then you have a visit with the FBI, who happens to visit to what seems like everyone who you've ever met. And I'm, I'm just glad that I've never really taken to social media. They ask, what's everything you've ever said on social media? And I've, I've really said nothing other than, thank you, everyone, for your happy birthday wishes. That's the, <laughs> the, the sum total of my social media presence, which perhaps, perhaps makes me not, uh, not the best student of uh, Judge Willett, who was our Twitter laureate of Texas. But, <laughs> uh, but I didn't learn those lessons from him, but perhaps I should have. But so after after that FBI background check, then you're just in queue if you if you pass muster, and so you, you sit and wait till the right time to to nominate you, and then you go through the Senate process. But uh, you know, I I just was fortunate. Uh, my hearing didn't garner much attention um, the first part of the day. They were all present in the Judiciary Committee um, questioning Jeff Rosen, who's now our acting Attorney General. He was up for the number two spot at the time, and I think um, they were so weary after asking very pointed and very good questions of him that there wasn't much oxygen left for people to stick around and and grill the panel that I was on. So at a mercifully short confirmation hearing, we trained our kids for perhaps a two or three hour hearing. You know, they'd practice by being on the front row of church, you know, sitting still for a long period of time. And when my confirmation hearing ended, uh, my, my middle son, uh, middle kid um, looked up at me and said, is that it? That that did it's over. <laughs> so fortunately, uh, it was. But there were still plenty of written questions to follow for anyone who couldn't go to the mm -hmm. hearing in person. Um, but it is a full contact sport, even if it's a short timeline. Uh, but I'm just fortunate that that part is behind me, and now I get to pay attention to the cases on the docket. So now you've been on the bench for a year and a half. How has that experience been? Well, I heard from everyone I asked who was a federal judge before confirmation. I asked, how is the job? And without exception, they all said, it's the best job on earth. <laughs> um, I now see that they're right and see why they're right. Um, it is humbling every day to see that the trust of the litigants is placed in you by virtue of your confirmation. Um, it, is, it is terrifying, right? If, uh, if we get it wrong on the district court level, a lot of times the parties can't afford to appeal our decisions mm -hmm. um, to the Court of Appeals. And so a lot of the cases, really, we are the court of last resort. And so it makes us work extra hard to try to make sure we don't make errors. Um, we're surrounded by law clerks who all seem to be smarter than we are as judges. And to get to work with a new group each year and learn from them is, is just a phenomenal experience. The mix of civil and criminal cases means we're always learning. There's no point in time at which I think oh, I know this area of the law uh, fully well enough to not jump on Westlaw and chase it down. I'm always having to research um, for, for every question that comes before me. But that always keeps the scenery new and intriguing. So it is, it is the best job on earth by far. Now, a good chunk of your time on the bench has been during the pandemic. Have you been able to um, form traditions with your law clerks despite that? <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. So our our tradition I wanted to start of eating lunch out with uh, people who have wonderful stories has not been able to happen yet. But we eat brown bag lunches in our chambers. And so that's a, that's a, 
you know, distant second place uh, to the traditions that I want us to have. I'm hoping that we'll come out of COVID soon enough to where um, the clerks this year can experience uh, some of that. Um, but, you know, our traditions look different during COVID, right? Our traditions are wearing masks while we have trials. Uh, we're still trying to uh, to put together trials that are done in a safe manner. And so it's really been such a different year that our clerks are not trying to learn how things are done, but are trying to help invent how things should be done during the pandemic. And that is perhaps going to make it a very, very unique year. Besides your uh, your feather pen, your quill pen from the Supreme Court, do you keep any other mementos in your chambers? Well, I do. And this stems back um, to the law review that I was on at the University of Texas. When we have that banquet every year and honor someone like a, a Senator John Cornyn, um, we also make a bobblehead of them and it helps keep them humble, right? No one likes how they look in bobblehead form. And so I, I collect these bobbleheads that we get at the banquet every year. I will say that um, there was one year where uh, Judge Willett was our jurist of the year. And the bobblehead production did not turn out quite right. Um, it, it perhaps, as, as he has told some, looks like his evil twin, if he had an <laughs> evil twin. The eyebrows are rather in, in sinister form. And so he had asked for the destruction of his bobbleheads. <laughs> But I have one that I'm looking at right now, Giancarlo. Um, I, I was able to get into the chain of production and spare a saved precious few from destruction. And I'm hoping that one day they will be more valuable than Bitcoin is today. <laughs> well, at some point, I would love to see this. I'm happy to uh, email you a picture. <laughs> well, Judge, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. I want to ask you one final question before you go. And that is, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, alive or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So if I could pick anyone alive or dead, I think I would go with the late Justice Scalia. And here's why. I had one interaction with him before. It did not go very well. Um, it wasn't in a case, but he was our jurist of the year for the Texas Review of Law and Politics one year. Uh, my wife and I were talking with um, then Attorney General Cruz, now Senator Cruz, and one other elected official in Texas. And the other elected official wanted to go meet Justice Scalia. And so we helped you know, clear a path in a crowded room to get over to Justice Scalia. I saw Justice Scalia from behind talking to a friend of mine from Austin. And I thought, oh, I can tap my friend on the shoulder and perhaps we can, we can join that conversation. I knew what Justice Scalia looks like from behind. Perhaps that was part of a law school exam, but my wife is not a lawyer and did not know what Justice Scalia looks like from behind. And so as I jumped in and started uh, interrupting with my friend, she starts uh, physically moving Justice Scalia to the right out of the way <laughs> to clear the path. And so he turns around and looks horrified that someone would do such a thing. And then she recognizes him from the front and totally saves it and says, uh, Mr. Justice Scalia, I'd like to introduce you to someone. And so uh, my wife saved the day, but later on, we had had a brief conversation with Justice Thomas in which my wife and Justice Thomas joked that perhaps they're the only two people to move Justice Scalia to the right, Thomas <laughs> ideologically, my wife physically. Uh, but I would like to go back and talk to him again. And here's what I'd like to ask him if given the chance. I think Justice Scalia's life's work was making textualism the method of interpreting statutes of the Constitution um, at the U.S. Supreme Court and at our lower courts. But I think there's still a lot more work to be done because, as Justice Thomas admitted in a case called Gamble recently, 
textualists can have these disagreements over the outcome of a case. We've seen that in a lot of cases at the Supreme Court differently. So I think Justice Scalia helped to give us the toolbox that we all agree on for textualist principles. I think now I would love to hear his guidance on how do we have more uniformity on when to use each tool in each particular situation. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on your show. GC, how have you been enjoying the snowy conditions in D.C. the past few days? To be perfectly honest, I wish we had more snow and it's stuck. I, I miss snow. Aren't you a Californian, though, GC? Uh, I'll plead the fifth. All right, fair enough. Well, I'm a Floridian, uh, so I'm not a fan of the snow. But since it's snowy weather right now in D.C., I thought a little snow-themed Supreme Court trivia might be appropriate for this week. Are you ready? I hope these are bunny slope questions. No guarantees, but I guess we'll find out. All right, here's the first question. Which chief justice was notorious for keeping the court in session even during extreme snowy sessions? Uh, In fact, he would often hold oral arguments or have the justices announce their opinions from the bench even when the rest of the federal government had a snow day. This was uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist. And actually, I remember a very funny story uh, that Justice Scalia told one time about how he and Justice Ginsburg had been picked up and were being driven through the snow and they came to a red light. And Justice Scalia told the uh, the driver, by the power vested in me, I order you to to run that red light. <laughs> I, I can picture that right now. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and I think uh, Ginsburg told him, I'm not sure you have that power. I think this may be one of the rare occasions when I agree with Justice Ginsburg. Uh, But, you know, even though Justice Rehnquist uh, was known for starting his legal career in Arizona, he originally grew up in Wisconsin, so he was no stranger to the snow. And your story makes perfect sense because legend has it that even in near blizzard conditions, uh, he would issue and send out court SUVs to bring the justices and the other personnel to the Supreme Court's building so that the regularly scheduled court sessions uh, could continue. You know, more power to Justice Rehnquist, because I am not a fan of the snow. <laughs> I'll say it again. But another justice is known for being a fan of the snow and, in fact, is an avid skier. So, GC, which justice during his or her confirmation hearing discussed their love for hitting the slopes and uh, skiing? You know, I don't remember this specifically, but considering that Justice Gorsuch is from Colorado, I think he's a safe Yeah, that's a great guess, and it's exactly right. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is from Colorado, and he's an avid skier. Uh, He even went so far during his confirmation hearing to jokingly say that the family that skis together stays together. And it's also been reported that he was even on the slopes when he learned about the unexpected death of Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, who was the justice he would ultimately go on to replace at the high court. All right, I've got one final question for you today, GC. All right. Uh, And this is a justice after my my own heart. Uh, This justice sought to escape D.C.'s cold winter weather by commuting to the court from his condo in Florida. So which justice was that? That's very interesting. I I don't know. I didn't know any justice uh, commuted (laughs) from Florida. (laughs) 
uh, well, like I said, a man after my own heart, uh, at least in this regard, uh, it was actually Justice John Paul Stevens. Uh, He's been described as the first justice who was a telecommuter. Toward the end of his time on the Supreme Court, Stevens spent about two weeks each month from November to April at his home in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, He even told interviewers that he did much more work from his Florida home than he did in Washington. And you know, GC, there is one uh, one story about this that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, Justice Stevens uh, used to tell it, and he said one day he was in the Supreme Court building, and he kind of piqued the other justices' jealousy uh, because when he opened one of the briefs for a case, a pile of sand fell out uh, because he'd been reading it on the beach. <laughs> All I can say is I think Justice Stevens knew how to work, and uh, I certainly agree with him that Florida is a great place to be. That's it for today, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this surprise episode of SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.